Welcome to the EFCA West podcast. I'm Tim Jacobs, District Superintendent of EFCA West and your host for today's podcast. Now, you may know that once a month we host a live online event called the First Wednesday Workshop. And the last one was the title of it was Understanding Sexual Issues in the Culture and the Church with Dr. Amy Stump. Now, Dr. Amy Stump is Professor of Society and Religion at Cal Baptist University in Riverside, California. She holds degrees, a PhD actually, in Social Policy and Research, an MA in Biomedical and Clinical Ethics. And she's also part of our EFCA West family as she is the wife of Pastor Paul Stump of Colton Community Church in Colton, California. Now, this conversation was so good and so helpful. It is one of the rare times that we have turned that event into a podcast. And that is the subject of what this podcast is today. It includes my interview with Dr. Stump, plus some questions and comments from those who were there with us online as well. I want to remind you to check out our website, efcawest.org. You can subscribe to the podcast. You can get on our email list. We're only going to email you once a week. We don't barrage you with all kinds of irrelevant stuff. It's it's very important for us to stay clear and concise and up to the minute with stuff that's going to help you and build our tribe here at EFCA West. And so now, here is my interview with Dr. Amy Stump. So yeah, we're just going to we're going to get going here. It's the top of the hour and I want to welcome everyone. Thank you for being here. This is our what we call our first Wednesday workshops. We do them once a month on the first Wednesday of the month and we try to bring the most uh, relevant topics to pastors and church leaders about what's going on in in churches and culture and all that kind of stuff. And it's so great to see so many of you and um, I see your faces and I'm really excited about our topic today. We're going to get the opportunity to um, to hear in just a moment from our guest, but I want to give you a couple of things to just be aware of. First of all, it is the first of the month, so we have our Zipline newsletter that comes out every month and it really is our best way of communicating with you. So we have a new podcast that just came out and this is going to be made into a podcast as well. And there's a bunch of other stuff. I know we've got, I mean, holy cow, what's going on in our world right now. We've got all the, the crisis with Afghanistan, of course, um, Hurricane Ida, as well as, as the earthquake in Haiti, which is kind of like, it's so easy just to forget these sort of mm-hmm. things. But um, we have kind of what EFCA is doing to, to be involved in, in those relief efforts. And you can check that out as well. So just know that we want to partner with you as much as possible for that. But um, so our title today is is called Understanding Sexual Issues in Our Culture and in Our Churches. And it's like, how do you come up with a title that really captures what is going on and what we need to talk about? So there's a lot of things, but we are really excited because our guest today is Dr. Amy Stump, and she is professor of society and religion at California Baptist University in Riverside, California. And she has degrees, she has a PhD in social policy and research and an an MA in biomedical and clinical ethics. And um, probably the most challenging part of her life is she is married to Pastor Paul Stump, who is pastor of Colton Community Church. I'm just kidding. Uh, uh, Paul's a great guy. Uh, So she is married to an EFCA uh, senior pastor and um, so a pastor's wife as well. So so carrying that that challenge. But um, Amy, if I could call you Amy, is that okay? Absolutely. So tell, is there anything else you want to fill in for us just real quick as we get started about your background in this, in, in this area or anything else? Um, no, I've been at CB for 26 years. I've got two students, two kids who are now students here. So those years are finally paying off. Um, and uh, yes, my husband is a, a pastor and that has been an interesting um, place where we're we get to have, he and I get to have discussions um, like what we're going to have today, uh, as well as with our students. I get to have a lot of discussions about sex and sexuality in their own life. So um, it's it's a topic that I didn't choose to get to know very well, but it has come uh, to be a, a regular part of my uh, my weekly conversations. So you didn't choose it, it sort of chose you. 
So yeah, my, predestined my family to... and my colleagues joke with me, like, is there a memo or a note in the student handbook that says, if you think this or you're having this problem or experience, you should go see Dr. Stump. I'm like, I don't know, but there must be a memo because people I do not even know who I've never had in a class. Sometimes they're not even students here. They know somebody and they show up in my office and they say, I heard I could talk to you. So yeah, um, that's great. I, word gets out that they can come and talk. No, that's fantastic. And so just to break down a little bit of what, what the format's going to look like for this hour, you know, specifically when we talk about understanding sexual issues in the culture and the church, and really uh, specifically we're going to talk about issues of same-sex attraction, intersexuality, gender dysphoria, and and anything else. And then as we'll, we'll have a conversation, and then we want to open it up for questions. Yeah. You can certainly put questions in the chat, and that's probably the easiest thing. If we don't get to every question, I'm sure, um, Amy, you know, perhaps you can provide a way for people who want to interact with you more on this. And I want to commend all of you for being here on, on this because this is it. It shows it says a lot. It shows a lot that you all, as as church leaders and pastors, are are trying to figure out what to do with all this. And if you're anything like me, it's just it's just walking through a lot of confusion. I mean, you know, it's it's not like we changed. It, the world has changed around us and we are just trying to keep up with everything. So let me just throw this out there and I'd love to just start off this way. You know, I just mentioned these three terms a minute ago, same-sex attraction, intersexuality, and gender dysphoria. I, the biggest challenge I'm having is just defining all of this stuff. What do, what do we mean by some of these things? And, and what are some of the these categories and what are the most, I guess, uh, pertinent categories for, for our purposes and what you're dealing with? All right. Um, and I really love talking just descriptively about these t- uh, categories or these terms, because so often we're making grand pronouncements or policy statements or personal commitments, and we actually don't even know how the words are used. So I think homosexuality is probably the most uh, clear of, and of course, uh, in a little bit, maybe we'll talk specifically about uh, views of homosexuality, but let's talk about intersex. And um, I might just try to share my screen and see if I can make, uh, make the technology work. Let's see, I'm going to share my entire screen and I think we are screen one. Are you seeing something that says intersex conditions? Yes. Okay. So intersex conditions are in some ways the easiest because there is clearly um, genetic um, problems or, or, or inconsistencies. And so there's really these four categories of intersex conditions. And so um Sometimes babies are born and we actually don't know, are they male or female? They may have um, un, they may have what we call ambiguous genitalia, where it doesn't look like a penis and testicles because there's no testicles that descended, but it doesn't look like there's um, a vaginal opening. Um, and even if we test genetically, you might have XX or XY, but so much of our Uh, genitalia and as a result gender and sexual identity is not just genetic it's significantly genetic but we used to think oh xxxy that that was set no those uh, chromosomes only express when they have sorry the guy next door is moving in i don't know if you can hear the drill i'm going to try to focus Um, those chromosomes only express with adequate hormonal and and perfect timing of these hormone washes. And so if there's any, sometimes just a matter of hours of interruption or mistimed hormone washes or a, a, a lack of exposure to a right hormone or an inability to uptake a hormone, um, such as in androgen insensitivity disorder, then you're going to get an intersex condition where uh, the male or female um, genitalia don't uh, properly form. And as you know, testicles have their own uh, hormone producing functions. Ovaries have their own hormone producing functions. So if they're not properly formed, then they won't produce the hormones that masculinize or feminize uh, the, the, uh, the embryo. And so we have babies that are born with 
mixed genitalia or ambiguous genitalia. So I, there are many, there are dozens of intersex conditions. Um, I've listed the four main categories here. Um, people can have both a testicle and an ovary. Those are basically the same tissue. The, the hormones direct how they will express. And if there's a um, hormone interruption, they don't express properly. Or there are chromosomal abnormalities where instead of getting the 46 clear XX, you might have a single X, no Y, no X. Um, you, where there's missing a chromosome, you might have too many chromosomes uh, in the sex uh, chromosomes. And as I've already said, some of this affects um, not just uh, the expression of genitalia, but also the expression of hormones that regulate and develop and mature genitalia. So it is uh, estimated one out of every 10,000 births is an intersex child who you can't at the end of the day even say this is a boy or this is a girl. Historically, when children were born with ambiguous genitalia, um, every, they just kind of said, let's chop stuff off and turn this into a girl. That was the easiest way. It turned out that that didn't work super well because we are far more than just uh, expressed genitalia when it comes to sexual identity, sexual experience, sexual orientation. And so uh, probably only about 30 years ago, the medical community stopped that as standard practice and said, we can't just go whacking off tissues that don't line up properly. We need to wait and see. There are intersex conditions. Uh, maybe some of you are familiar with an Olympic runner named Castor Semenya. She is a, a woman. She is genetically female. Um, she, if you do your DNA, she's going to be clearly female. And she's actually not intersex in that she has breasts, ovaries, uterus, um, normal uh, female um, body parts. But she has a, an intersex condition that's uh, hormonal. Her body produces an incredibly high amount of testosterone, which you know is a masculinizing um, hormone, and does not produce much in the way of estrogen. And so her testosterone levels exceed that of a normal male, which is why she can run so, so fast. Mm -hmm. And so no fault of her own, she didn't do anything to have these high levels, um, but she has been disqualified from competing with women because they say, well, your hormones are like a man, even though your, your chromosomes and your genitalia are female. And so these are just many, many variations on how things can get um, or are um, not quite right. You know, when I talk about intersex, we, I'm a, a Christian from a pretty conservative Protestant uh, tradition uh, of that you're you're part of, and our story, our founding story, says male and female. God created them male and female, and so we, we really think, oh, everyone's either a male or a female. No questions. So, what do you do when your kid is born with a testicle and an ovary? What do you do when the the boy starts to menstruate? It, it turns out that all the genetic stuff that has affected us can affect our sexual expression too. And that's what intersex is. I say it's one of the easiest only because really there should not be too much moral questioning on intersex. It's, it's like having a baby born with hearing deficits or cognitive, uh, you know, irregularities or, you know, missing fingers. This is what happens to the um, chromosomes when we're in a world that has been affected by sin for millennia. Well, let me uh, let me jump in on that real quick because the, yeah. I guess the first question I have is on that is is this something? What is the is there research been on this? Is this something that is increasing in number, or has historically this is pretty much kind of the way it's been? It's just that recently, maybe because of the way they've handled it, it's become more brought out into the open. Right. We have no reason to think that intersex conditions, true intersex conditions, are increasing. 
Um, what's happened though is with genetic testing, uh, we can actually know more about them. Uh, you go back biblical times and ancient Near East culture, there's always these categories of people who we used to call them hermaphrodites or androgynous, where, where they something wasn't right. But so I don't think statistically it's increasing. It's just that we can now more adequately diagnose um, or um, we a lot of people that had uh, sexual anomalies were just forced to not ever acknowledge that really up until probably the mid 1980s we did not even have a medical diagnosis uh, that was legitimate called intersex or disordered genitalia there's some different language that we use mm. so i don't think it's actually increasing i just think we're finally aware of it and destigmatizing it enough that we can address this as a medical diagnosis and not some sort of moral um you know abomination see i think that's uh, a, yeah i think that's important that you point that out because i know the other categories we will get into some of the moral stuff but but as as pastors and as you know leaders and everything else for us to to be able to make that distinction and to say you know it, uh, it isn't like there's heterosexuality and then all the other categories are biblically pro problematic uh, morally problematic it's there are some and you you know as you go back to this is the result of the fall just like any kid any kid that's born with some other kind of I think the challenge though is that, is that the culture you know it's kind of like if if a if a child is born blind with the cultures and go, well, you're just as good as a, you know, like you, you have no other problems as a sighted kid. It's like, no, obviously right. there's a, there's a disability. What we're doing is it seems like we're saying, well, it doesn't, these things shouldn't matter. Or they're not a big deal or, or it's, it's just as normal as, is, you know what I'm saying? So I think that's maybe. Well, and in, in fact, if, if a kid is born blind, we actually provide extra support to the family, to the child, mm -hmm. to their whole experience. Right. Because we say, hey, there's some deficiencies that we're going to have to now add. But when a kid is born uh, with a sexual um, disordering, it's so embarrassing or stigmatizing or somehow associated with immorality that most parents that I have talked to who have this happen, they, they just withdraw from any kind of church community. Because think about wh where does that kid go for uh, summer camp? If I have a genetically female, but who has um, male hormones to the point that, you know, there's beard and all that, you know, where does this kid go? Where does a kid who has a penis, a testicle and an ovary and menstruates go for summer camp? Girl dorm, boy dorm, which which small group they get to be in. And so they don't fit well into the um the church culture of you're a boy, you're a girl, and anything in between is immoral. And so, um, yeah, we really need to think through this carefully because people in our congregations are having to figure out what to do to help their children uh, be part of the community when they don't have a clear male or female. I, I come from I, the same subculture you come from where things like non-binary or putting a third option on a on a our uh, identification our driver's license or something somehow seems really wicked. And I'm thinking it's not wicked if your kid is born with an ovary and a testicle. You know, what, what are you supposed to do? Um, so we, we need to think through this, uh, with a little bit of, of clarity. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think it's important and we, and to, okay, so good. So, so that's, that's very helpful. So let's move on to the other, other things that you have there that you would want okay. to understand with these terms. All right. Let's go to another one that is going to be a little more controversial. You do have some, you do have some, some mice in the walls there, I guess. Right. Some, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What are the odds that all summer long, they like... choose today at, at 11 o'clock to drill whatever they're drilling yeah. over there? All right. The second category uh, is gender dysphoria. And uh, sometimes we, in, in uh, regular culture, we call it uh, transgenderism. Gender um, uh, dysphoria is really probably the better term. And this is where one's brain 
and one's body don't line up. And so transgender and um, the other alternative is cisgender. So me, I'm a cisgendered woman. My brain says female, my body says female. Most of you are cisgendered men, um, or maybe maybe there's a few women too. Um, but so uh, gender dysphoria, the brain identifies as the uh, other gender. Now, th this one, I, in our subculture, I think we do really think of it as a choice, but research indicates it is a regular, a, probably a very genetically um, linked situation. And I've just put a little notes up there. We'll see uh, that in identical twins, both will have this experience, whereas in fraternal twins, maybe one will have it and one will not, which is always a great way to start to track genetics. The, the current research, and it's limited, so we don't have a huge body of definitive research, but the current research indicates several causes of the transgender experience, and uh, a lot of it has to do with hormone washes. Because remember, we always have to answer this question, who's the real me, my body or my brain, if those two don't line up? And historically, we have said biology trumps psychology. Until more recently, we have said maybe psychology trumps biology. I'm not going to answer that for you, but I am going to give you some um, examples to think about whether biology trumps psychology or psychology trumps biology. Um, here's um, an example. If somebody is injured in a car accident and their brain is so damaged that they will never regain consciousness. In fact, we do some tests and we say they are brain dead. A brain dead person, or sometimes we call them living cadavers because we actually want to keep their biology going. We put them on very expensive machines to keep uh, oxygenating them, keep uh, all this stuff going so that we can take that al alive, that living body, and we can chop it up and harvest the organs, and we can send them out to several dozen people. And no one thinks that we have now murdered somebody because we said he's already dead. His brain died and his psychology, his brain uh, is what made him alive. So now we're just using his body, but but his body is alive. So in that sense, we, we think psychology trumps biology. Or... Um, I could give several other examples. So then when we get to the sexual issue, we have to think through like, okay, if your brain says female, because hormonally it's getting the female, um, experientially, if you're married for three minutes, you know that men and women have very different brains. And I'm a pretty out there feminist, but I'll be the first to say, man, my brain does not work like my husband's brain. He can't seem to see that there's a soppy, wet sponge in the sink. And I don't know why his eyeballs don't see that. I don't happen to ever see that the oil light is on. My brain does not see that. So we do have different brains. And so with gender dysphoria, we get a disordering of brain body. Um, Again, the, the, there's not longitudinal data on how this comes to be, but like I say, increasingly, it looks to be uh, a disruptive chemical situation during in utero development or a hormonal imbalance uh, during puberty where the, uh, there's not adequate maleizing or femaleizing hormones. In fact, there might, uh, there's, in some cases, there's... Um, uh, benign tumors that overproduce, uh, let's say, female hormones and cause the brain to not uh, develop in the same direction as the body. One of the reasons this is really important, not only because we need to understand and care for people who are experiencing this, but as I put there, they are at least five times more likely to uh, attempt or die from suicide. And I remember talking to a woman, a Christian woman, a Southern Baptist kind of Bible-believing lady who had um, a son who uh, at a young age uh, said, I am not a boy, I'm a girl. And they were pretty horrified. 
And as they worked through this year after year after year, suicide attempt after suicide attempt, she finally said, I realized I can have a dead son or I can have a daughter. And that was pretty sobering for me to take in. And I think um, for other parents of children who are experiencing uh, this dysphoria. Now, there is what I would call true gender dysphoria that will generally start to manifest at about three years old, about the time that children are aware of their body parts. They're, they're acknowledging differences in girl-boy body parts. Your body looks different than mine. Mommy looks different than daddy. You'll see them in their pictures. They'll If they draw your family, it's like without clothes and all body parts are very clear. That's because around three and four, they're starting to develop um, their sexual identity. I'm a girl. What does that mean? I'm a boy. What does that mean? So in true gender dysphoria, we'll start to see those statements of, of this is not me uh, come out. You'll have, uh, let's say, somebody who's a girl say, no, I'm not a girl. I want to be a boy. I don't want a doll. I want to wear boy clothes, those kind of things, or vice versa. Okay, um, what I'm not talking about is this recent, I say last eight, 10 years, I guess since my kids have been in high school, where it's somehow cool when you're about 11th grade to show up to high school and say, well, today I'm a boy or today I'm a girl and I'm going to check it all out. That is not actually clinical gender dysphoria. Um, it does not have any of the characteristics. If you were to look at the um, DSM or something, it doesn't have any of the characteristics of true gender dysphoria. Um, it really would start at the first self-awareness of sexual identity. Those children become very anxious, very agitated as they come toward puberty and their brain goes further in one direction, their body goes further in the other direction. And that's where we get the very highest uh, rates of suicide. Um, and then of course, uh, as they mature, um, things get real dicey. Yeah. And Tim, I, did you have a yeah, I love the fact that you're bringing this up because as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself, you, know, you made a distinction between a, a real a real condition that that people have. And then you just said, then there is this other type of cultural phenomenon where it becomes kind of cool to go from one to the other. And it seems to me that that the effect of the latter that has had on the former is it delegitimizes the yeah. former, right? Because we go, yeah. well, you know, every this is just an example of the culture moving further and further away from from normative ideas of sexuality. And so we dismiss right. uh, the whole condition, carte blanche, as opposed to saying, right. wait a second, there are some legitimate things where things go wrong. Now, these are rare, as you seem to saying, but 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 when all you see is the other side, you're tempted to just go, OK, this whole thing is wrong. And right. I mean, is that right? Right. I mean, then you get a bunch of, of 16 year olds who all want to do like, oh, today we're going to be girls, we're going to be boys. And, we're gonna, you know, that that is actually, I think, cruel to people who really actually suffer from this tragic condition of mm. gender dysphoria. I would not want to live in a body that I felt like was not me. If you put an extra arm on me and I woke up today with an extra arm, I would just be overwhelmed with grossness. Like, this is not me. I would get to Kaiser today and say, you need to chop this arm off. It is not my arm. And um, so they are really suffering. And then I just kind of, uh, not only does it disservice, but I think it's just cruel to turn it into um, kind of a fun, you know, joke. Um, hmm. So yeah, I agree with you, Tim. It, it has not served true clinical gender dysphoric uh, patients very well to have this cultural phenomenon of, oh, you know, I think I'll try it all out. And no one, and no one like that. This is the first time that I've ever heard it put the way that you put it to, to speak of it as cruel to those who are really suffering. That is a very powerful point that I think almost from an apologetic standpoint, because my mind always goes that direction mm. to, to, to dealing with this, to say, no, there are some people you know, because it really goes after both sides. The one side that says, ah, now this is all made up. But then the other side yeah. that says, no, we just have to be okay with whatever you want. And what you're, the conclusion you've drawn is really profound. Um, let me ask you really quick, because Mike Kalani is asking, is, is just to go back and just touch on this briefly, because I know there's a lot and we're, we're already, you know, we're just, the time is flying. Is, is brain activity the same as the psychology? I think you were referring to being, people being brain dead and that sort of thing. 
Um, can you just hit that first real quick? Yeah. So I'm using the word psychology very loosely, not the way my friends over in the psychology department would want me to. Um, but what I'm uh, getting at is who are we? Are we our body or are we our brain? Now, obviously, in a perfect world, we're both. But when those are disordered, which one trumps, right? And so um, currently, we're in a culture, and I think it's it's right, um, that brain is really um, the the trump. So what, um, by brain activity, we, you're, I don't know who asked the question, but uh, the, the ability of the brain to self-regulate, right? Uh, once that brain has stopped to a certain level being able to self-regulate, we consider you dead. We, we are allowed to bury you. And um, so pretty strong indicator that, that we are in a uh, brain uh, dominant world. Um, I don't, don't hear me to say psychology, meaning therapy, analysis, those kind of things, but just the functioning of the brain is our litmus test for who's alive and what's the, the true, true you. Well, and, and the, you know, I get, oh, yeah. And the composition of the soul is so, you know, like what makes us us is such a complex question. Right. That it's right. Really, That's another day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and but, so, yeah, go ahead. No, no, you go. No, I think that's a good clarification on that. And I think we do need, I think you make a legitimate point um, that, that, I mean, it, 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 it does need to be both, but, but if you lose, you know, if a guy was to lose, I mean, sometimes there's guys in war who get their oh, genitalia yeah. blown off. Does that mean they're no longer a man? You know, I mean, there's like that guy exactly. kind of thing. So, right. Right. Yeah. And then Amy, hey, uh, and women, think about um, women. We, we have our breasts cut off for mm-hmm. cancer and stuff. It doesn't make us less a woman. I always do this exercise with my, my students where I'm like, okay, what if we lose one arm? What about with two's arm? This is, and, and at what point do we stop being a living human being? And it always comes down to the brain. So I can have a guy in a bed with nothing but a brain that we're keeping alive. But if he is self-aware, we're like, no, he's alive. But I can have a perfectly healthy body and no brain working and he's clearly dead. So yeah, it's pretty easy to finally go, oh yeah, I guess I'm a brain person. <laughs> Amy is commenting how culture morphs an actual condition and we can actually use this definition an example of helping people, our youth understand the difference. Yeah. I think she's just commenting that, yeah, this is, this is important um, because, because the culture has, you know, it's interesting that Amy's point, the culture has kind of hijacked this to use it to mm-hmm. its own liberation in a sense. Well, and, uh, you know, often I think as Christians, we think, oh, the culture has hijacked our stuff and and distorted it. Well, true gender dysphoric people must feel the same way. Like, hey, you're you're pretending like you have a problem as if it's if it's cool. It's not cool to feel like this. Um, You know, we would, I hope, not ever think, oh, you know, I, I think I'll just pretend to be an amputee and let people hop around as amputees and think that that was somehow showing respect to people who have really suffered because of uh, injuries that have cost them one of their limbs. So, yeah, I find it very disrespectful to true gender dysphoric uh, uh, people. But then the other side of that says, but then we need to be very respectful and sympathetic and empathetic to people who are actually suffering gender dysphoria and to their parents, because as I said, this will generally manifest very, very early. So what is a a mother and a father in your church to do when their five-year-old says, I am not a boy, I am a girl. I'm telling you, I am a girl. I don't want boy things, my brain is girl. What What are they supposed to do? Are they supposed to just tell the kid, shut up, shame, on you. We'll, we'll get you some counseling. How do they help this kid who has this deep um, problem that very likely, I mean, it's clearly not a choice of the gender dysphoric people I've uh, met and talked to. And the, the research literature is overwhelmingly, they do not choose this. They do not want this. Their, their deep desire is to be cisgender, to have brain and body line up. And so uh, what is a mom and dad, what are mom and dad to do with a kid who's having this experience? One of the, the, the only treatment we have at this point is to give hormone blockers 
and to give antidepressants and anti-anxiety medications, although people under 18 don't respond well to those, it can actually heighten suicidalism. So we're very, very limited in the medical uh, community on uh, how to help. So the, what they do now, if the parents are willing, um, is give hormone blockers to delay puberty and give this kid's brain time to develop a bit further uh, before they make any irreversible um, decisions and changes. But it so- um, sounds because- like, it, yeah, it sounds like then, Amy, that that there are legitimate times when hormone blockers and those kinds of things can be utilized. But again, what we k- k- seem to, to get uh, continuing thrown at us is this idea that, oh, your kid wakes up one day and decides it's kind of cool to be a girl, so here's some hormone blockers. And it's like, no, that's yeah. not what we want to do. Yeah, and, and honestly... Those narratives, I think, are pervasive in the news or whatever, but I hang out with the medical community. All my degrees are from a Loma Linda University, a big hospital, and there's no doctor who's going to give powerful hormonal medicine to a minor without really good reasons, because they will risk their license. And so we hear these stories, but if you actually go and look in the medical literature, what what it would take to get your kid on some sort of major hormonal disruptive uh, kind of meds, it, this is not just being handed out like Advil. So I think the narrative is very different than the reality. Yeah. Um, can we move on then to, to cause this is yeah. fantastic. What I want to make sure that we talk about briefly too, cause I think this is even more controversial because of the acceptance and the, uh, the cultural, the cultural trappings that go along with it, but um, but the idea of same sex attraction, yeah, uh, and 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 okay. and, just, and again, we're talking to pastors and church leaders who who like how can we best minister effectively and ha- like help us wade yeah. through some of the issues there from from where okay. you come and from. Let me disclaimer: I, I I don't have the answer. If I did, I'd probably get a Nobel Prize and be fired. So um, <laughs> would be one At good bad time. day. Yeah, right. Uh, On my little spectrum here, there's basically three views. One that uh, you're familiar with in our culture, that homosexuality or same-sex attraction is just a normal, natural sexual occurrence. Let's celebrate it and, and, you know, enjoy it. In the middle view, and I would be in this view, maybe many of you, and Mark Yarhouse, who will be a reference or a a resource I'll give to you, is in this view. that it is a brokenness of our uh, sexuality, just like we're very comfortable recognizing that as humans, we get born with broken eyes and broken, you know, minds that sometimes have mental illness or a broken, whatever, you're familiar with that. But of course, our sexuality also has every ability to be broken. Uh, And then the third option is that it is a self-chosen perversion. I certainly grew up and in that home that I'm looking for my little mouse here, I grew up in the home that taught that homosexuality is something you choose and you should just unchoose it if you love Jesus. I am no longer able to be in that camp. And, and uh, as I talk to students, and this is by far the, the most common conversation about sexuality I have, um, this has been a very cruel and um, traumatizing uh, position. I am in this camp here that, um, man, we're, we're broken in all sorts of ways. And so um, we need to acknowledge it. I don't think people choose to be gay. The increasing evidence uh, from the scientific community is that there is a significant genetic component to it. Or uh, our sexual identity, all of us, you know, is highly genetic. We just talked about what happens when the genes get messed up with intersex. And so it's, it's called polygenic. There are a few things that are monogenic, like, you know, a switch. It's, you're either this or that. But not very many things are either this or that. Most things are polygenic. There's a series of genes that have to be present and express. Now, we all have genes that do not express. We call them recessive. Or some genes express later with either teratogenic, so external um, influence like uh, chemicals or internal influences like chemicals. So increasingly, um, science is telling us that the the gay 
experience, the homosexual experience is highly genetic and they're able to identify a series of genes. It kind of looks like a waterfall if you were to look at a gene map, I won't pull one up here, but of as they express, then you get this, these differing spectrums of um, sexual experience, sexual identity. Now, um, I want to use, uh, my, my other slide is Mark Yarhouse, who I really think is a good resource for all of us. He uses this language of these three lenses. One lens says, um, this is a, a integrity problem. Like, you, and it focuses on the Genesis account of creation in his image, male and female, God makes, creates, and anything short of this ideal of the perfect man, the perfect woman, the, the marriage is, sin and has to be corrected. Let me jump down to the bottom, the diversity lens. That's the idea that um, God has uh, this endless love and that the rest of the whole Bible after sin enters the world is about his love and acceptance of, of marginalized people and that these differences need to be celebrated and, um, and we need to capitalize on them. And then you have that middle that I was already talking about of a disability lens and that says, hey, yeah, we have Genesis 1 and 2. God created us with this intention, but in our rebellion, we, we blew it. And so now we have sin that has affected us. Now, that's different than saying we chose this. I was thinking about the, the story in the Bible where uh, Jesus comes into the town and three or four or five times in the passage, it says this man is born blind. This man is born blind. A man who was born blind. His parents say, we don't know, he's born blind. He's obviously born blind. And the disciples, here's their question. Who sinned that this man was born blind? Jesus looks at him and is like, that's a dumb question. That's not the right question. He says, but I'm going to tell you, God's going to get the glory for, for the healing of this man. Now, so when we say our sexuality is affected by sin, that's very different than saying you sinned, therefore you have this experience, right? We're not, we're not Buddhists. We don't believe in karma. So um, the disability lens says, hey, I got bad eyes. You got a real distorted sexual attraction thing. Now, how do we come around you and bear that burden? How do we help you? How do we have community? And what can, uh, does holiness look like for you today? Now, in you might be hearing these sides, side A, side B, and side X. And don't worry if you can't keep up with all the sides. It's just fine. But this is the dialogue in the a Christian gay world um, within a rather large community of scholars and counselors and people, lay people who are experiencing uh, homosexuality and same-sex attraction. These are the kind of the camps now that have uh, identified themselves. Side A says it's okay to identify as gay, to finally say, hey, I'm Amy, I'm a Christian, and I'm gay. And it's okay to have same-sex marriage, but what God requires is a covenant marriage to one partner, not any kind of um, promiscuity. Um, and, you know, we have to be very careful to not lump all homosexuals into one lifestyle. I hear people talk about, well, the homosexual lifestyle. Well, that's like saying the heterosexual lifestyle. Like, what do you mean? Do you mean the heterosexual who goes out and gets drunk and has sex with a different lady every night? Did you mean the heterosexual who is um, a monk and does never have sex? Like which heterosexual lifestyle were you meaning? The, the loveless marriage or the, you know, whatever. So the same would be true of the homosexual lifestyle. Like that is a useless phrase. It does not mean anything. So in this side A, they would say, you know, that God has love for us. He makes us righteous through his son, not through our wellness. And it, the what you can do to approximate morality is have one marriage partner and be in a stable covenant marriage. Side B says, don't even identify as gay. Just identify as a person who has same-sex attraction. But once you identify as gay, somehow you're now... I don't, I don't know why they are concerned about that. And maybe some of you do, but uh, somehow that like you're, you're embracing this gay identity and you shouldn't do that. 
Side B says God is going to require singleness and celibacy, that you, you're just going to have to buck up and be single and celibate whether you wanted to or not. Side X says you don't get to identify as gay. You have to fight constantly to resist same-sex attraction. Any continued experience of same-sex attraction is willful disobedience. And it's going to be the uh, emphasize that God will heal your sexual brokenness and that the goal and only goal is heterosexual marriage. So these are the camps that have kind of solidified within the Christian community of uh, surrounding homosexuality. Let me stop and, and say comments from Tim or questions or yeah, it, the one reaction I have is to to the the question I have is you mentioned earlier that you know that that there are people who it's it's a biological thing. I I do think like for example our teenage daughter as came home one day and she said, "Dad, um, the new phrase now is super straight," which basically is a pejorative that says if you're a straight person and only a straight person that makes you a prude because you're not willing to 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 be adventurous. Um, it, could we say that the, regarding even our previous discussion about gender dysphoria, that um, people and it tends to it does tend to seem to be more women easily seem to be able to go back and forth to this kind of thing than than guys just anecdotally to me. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But isn't is is would you say that that's also doing a disservice to those who really who really legitimately have these genetic things that go on and, and once again it causes us to dis we look at those lifestyles that seem more arbitrary and dismiss all of it right out. Yeah, I think anytime we're um, lumping everybody, especially on something as important as sexual identity, together, uh, it's a disservice. I, I kind of lost track of, of your question because, and now I lost track of the answer I was giving to the question I didn't understand. Um, well, I, I think what I was asking was, I mean, there, I mean, you would say too that there are, I mean, it be, it is becoming more fashionable today for people to, to uh, say, well, like you know, for like for like teenage girls to say, oh, I'm going to be a lesbian now and that sort of thing, too. That's less yeah. chosen. Okay, yeah, yeah, I see what you mean. Just like uh, like you were saying in uh, transgender uh, diagnosis, there's a difference between I'm exploring and checking out my options and um, genuine, uh, pervasive and persistent same-sex attraction. Um, and you'll hear this, and, and I guess there's truth to it. You'll hear sometimes people say, well, everybody experiences same-sex attraction at some point. Well, I don't think everybody probably does, but you see my spectrum. Our sexuality is very fluid. As you know, if you've had children, you see them move and then eventually they become a hypersexual. That's called puberty. And, you know, and then that's going to ebb and flow. So much of that is hormonal. You get to um, midlife or, or you know later in life, women go through menopause. It's interesting. A number uh, that that seems to be a, a significant time in the life of a woman who has been heterosexual her whole life, goes through menopause, and to us it seems like suddenly is a lesbian. Well, she hasn't suddenly become a lesbian. The hormones have very drastically changed. Hormones are powerful. You have had, if you have children who have gone through puberty, you know that a few weeks of hormones and their bodies take on remarkably different proportions. Their brains completely go wacky and hair starts to grow. Um, so hormones do a lot that we can see, but they also do a lot we can't see. And so there are these major periods in life, and high school happens to be one of them, where hormone surges are um, really irregular. And so we'll get this hypersexual experience. And in that hypersexual experience, there's some fluidity of uh, who they're ex uh, attracted to. There's something called pansexual. Mm -hmm. And what that means is I'm attracted to the personality of the person, regardless of what their gender or sex is. Well, um, I'll give you an example of that. Heterosexual people who are in very intense therapeutic or emotionally um, heightened situations like counseling. 
can develop what they perceive to be sexual attraction to a same-sex person. So you think of girls in an eating disorder group. They're all struggling with anorexia, bulimia, and some other serious problems. They're together, let's say, in an inpatient setting every day together, and they're having these therapy sessions where they're very emotional. Simultaneously, they're at a very heightened sexual time of life. Their hormones are surging. And then they experience same-sex attraction with another girl in the group who they've disclosed a lot of deep emotional stuff to. That is very different than someone who says persistently and pervasively, always, I am attracted to a man or a woman. So um, that that's sometimes called gender fluidity. It has a lot to do with hormones is, is what the thinking is right now. Yeah. And uh, now Omar is, I think Omar was kind of basically asking the same question I was asking, you know, would it not be the same as the previous case with same-sex attraction where some people have a biological issues, but some do choose. And what about um, yeah. the social influences? And that, that was the thing. Yeah. I, I mean, you would say that clearly the the social the social acceptability of this has facilitated more people saying, "Well, yeah, I'm going to try this or whatever else." Right. Yeah. So I think um, I think it's all. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> remember when um, some folks come to Jesus and they're it's the disciples actually, and uh, they're talking about marriage, and and Jesus actually says. You know, whether you're castrated by birth, there's been a a problem and you don't actually have all the parts by man. You've been literally castrated or um, by your own choice. That's not the question. How you got here is not the question. The question is, what do you do now? (laughs) And so uh, that was a a terrible hack job on that verse. But you you pastors can can salvage it. But it's a good lead in. It's a good lead into the next question. I don't know if it matters so much how someone comes to the place of saying this is is what i'm experiencing right now i i I don't know as pastors if it matters so much how they got here i think some definitely are born with a genetic predisposition and you all have met those kids where by five or six you're like i wonder if he knows he's gay and i don't say that in a cruel way i just say like you know it's pretty obvious other times it, it does seem like there's some choosing involved. Of course, there's there's a strong theory of abuse. Now, statistically, that does not pan out. We don't see that that homosexuals are mostly people who were sexually abused. But obviously, there is an element of damage that can be done. So, how people get to that place of identifying as gay, I'm not sh- I'm not sure that is as significant as well. What do we do now? Yeah. And and as a pastor or as a Christian professional, I I always start with the question, are you a Christian? Because I believe Christians can find themselves experiencing them, their gayness, or I also believe that gay people can become Christians. So um, are you a Christian? If the person says yes, I'm like, great, then we have the Holy Spirit to help us. If the person says no, then I say, well, your problem is not your sexuality. Your problem is you're spiritually dead. I say it nicer than that, but that's how I kind of And like, let's not talk about your sexual stuff. Let's talk about your spirit. And then trust that if the Holy Spirit is invited in, he is the great convictor. (laughs) He's a better convictor than I am on everything. So um, anyway, I I guess I I don't focus so much on how someone comes to the place of saying I'm gay. Yeah. And I think that that's the same thing too, because like for all of us, whether you're, you know, you're a heterosexual or same sex attracted or all these things, if, if I am a believer, I have a responsibility to surrender my sexuality to the Lordship of Christ as revealed through the scripture. Right. And right. so that's the, in, in that case, it's this now it's a different, I think we have to acknowledge that's a, that's a different burden. That's a different level of burden for someone who's mm-hmm. never able to have an appropriate uh, expression of what they, what they want, you know, I mean, for a, a heterosexual person, well, okay, get married and, and do it, you know, do all that stuff there with that person. Um, but, but we, but we're all, we're all asked to do the same thing, which is to surrender those desires to the authority of Christ. Right. Right. And, and part of the moral life of Christians and non-Christians, but hopefully to a higher standard Christians is to manage our sexuality. Yeah. And that looks different in different seasons of life. If your spouse is in a nursing home, you have to manage your sexuality differently than if you're a single guy at college. Um, 
And so, and so the question then is how, what is the best way to manage sexuality at this stage of life in a way that's holy and honoring to God? And, um, and that's where side A and side B have really come to blows because um, side A says there has to be space within the, the people of God for a covenant, faithful, loving marriage, even if it's same-sex partners. Side B says no. Whether you are given the gift of singleness or not, you're you're going to be single and celibate. And as Tim has mentioned, that's not a that's a big ask. Um, I don't know any of you or many of you on today, but I'm guessing most of you, if not all of you, did not choose singleness and celibacy. Probably most of you are married um, or have been married or wish to be married. So this is we we should not minimize if you are in the side B category of saying, hey, be a Christian and love Jesus enough to be holy. And for you, that looks like single sense always, we should not minimize what is lost. The cost is very, very high. Certainly a lot higher than what I have to pay in my sexual life. And I think that's so important that you bring that up. And I do want to clarify just for everyone listening, because sometimes we get we do get a contingent of people who who see what's going on in the culture and they worry that the Evangelical Free Church of America is going to drift one way or the other. Um, side B was the side in the middle, right? About saying that, yeah. no, it's one man, one woman, you know, and certainly there are, I mean, that that is solidly Evangelical Free position mm-hmm. um, on that and that we want to walk with people who are struggling no matter who they are. But there is there is no attempt or effort or any kind of shenanigans going on to try to move us as a movement or anything to drift into any type of scenario other than what the Word of God says about the proper expression of sexuality. That being said, the final thought is really coming back to then how do we, how do you, and I know you're not a pastor, I know you're a professor, but with what you're on, with what you see and what you know, could you give those of us who are in active ministry every day uh, and, and working with people, what would you say to us to, to be more effective in how we pastor people um, properly in this way? Um, well, obviously, I don't have any magic bullets that you all have not already thought of. And I'm going to stop sharing so I can see you. Uh, Give me just a minute. But I asked some of my friends and students, I told them, hey, I'm going to be talking with some pastors and they're goodwilled people. And uh, I don't even know how to make this stop. Oh, well, we'll just live with it. Um, And uh, what would you, oh, there we go. What would you want them to know? And several of them responded. And one is they, they love God and they want to love God. And I think sometimes we don't start there. I think of, um, you know, God's, of course, his first revelations to humans is, I love you, I'm for you, and I will be with you. And it's only after he has declared repeatedly, like thousands of years, I am, I love you, I'm for you, and I'm with you. Then he says, so here's what you ought to do. He does the oughting after he does the withing, foring, and with uh I give my love just categorically to you. We like to start with the oughting. You ought to do this so that I can love you and be with you and be for you. And so I think it would be good for us just to go back and say, let's model God's love that starts with, I love you because I, I is who I am. And I'm giving my love to you. I will be with you and I am for you. And then I will tell you, here's what you ought to do. So, um, my students tend to find uh, the conservative Christian emphasis on morality quite hostile. Of course, of course they they do. Um, so I would disarm them by saying, you know, I'm just not overly worried about your sex right now, your sexual life. Now, obviously, I don't want to minimize sin. I, I get accused, I'm afraid, of being soft on sin. I'm not. I, I just am really gung-ho on people experiencing uh, union with Christ. Um, so I would start with, let's just figure out what you need to grow in in loving Jesus. My husband, we had a, a gay couple coming to church for a while. Eventually they moved, but um, praise God. They, they were recently together. They decided, you know what? We grew up in the church. We need Jesus in our life. So they showed up at our funny little church. And 
very clearly gay. My husband's finally, after a couple of weeks, and we got to know them, invited them over for dinner, you know, try to minister to them. And he finally just had lunch with them and said, I don't actually know how to pastor gay people. Can you help me understand what it would mean to be a good pastor to you? Mm. Now, even though their answers probably weren't necessarily what he was going to do, it opened up the dialogue. Let's just, just say, hey, here's the deal. Um, that would be one thing. Another thing, and I long for this at my school, we say, oh, if you're gay, then what God expects is that you be single and celibate. But when I meet single and celibate uh, Christian men and women who are single and celibate because they're gay, they never get allowed to be hired as leaders and to be acknowledged as gay people, which is not fair and it's not helpful. So I think it would be better to say, Bob here is a gay man who is doing the noble life of of trusting the spirit for sanctification and self-control. That's somebody who should be in leadership. Now, obviously, like any leader, when there are moral failures, you move them. You say, hey, you got to take a break. You're, you're, you need to be doing some work uh, with the spirit uh, privately. But, but I rarely see churches that will honor our gay people or our transgendered people who are just living with this or intersex people who are living with this and all of the burdens and saying, I love Jesus more than sex, so I'm willing to do this. They're not elevated. And it's really harmful when I have a student who comes in and, and I'm saying, you know, I really want to talk to you about what would life look like as a single celibate person. And they have this dismal view. And I never get to say, go see Dr. So-and-so. He has mastered this. Go see Dr. such and such. She has done this. Because we're not allowed to acknowledge that they are gay. They're not allowed to acknowledge that they are gay. Hmm. And so I, I miss out on opportunities to have resources to say, hey, she's done this. Go talk to her. He's done this. Go talk to him. And same in the church. Whereas I think it might be better if, let's say, uh, you've got a, a guy who's gay, he's gifted in music, he's your worship leader, so long as he lives the, the same moral life that uh, you know a single heterosexual guy would be expected to live, be the worship leader and let him be a resource to people who are exploring uh, and, and experiencing uh, sexual development. That's one thing I think we have not done well in church. Like I can't name a legitimate church leader anywhere in, in uh, conservative evangelicalism who acknowledges I'm gay and here's my, maybe, uh, was it Wesley Hill? Maybe one, but yeah. And yeah, no, I, 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 I think those are, those are challenging words. And again, what I love about this conversation and everyone's listening, I mean, if you're like me, you're sitting back and you're, you're going, okay, I gotta, I gotta think about this. What are the implications of this? And I, you know, I can't, I, I want to, I really want to commend you. I know you obviously you're very bright. You're, you're, you know, you clearly have, have dedicated your life to this research and so you probably don't feel this way, but for what it's worth, I, I commend your courage to come on to a Zoom call with a bunch of pastors who, and I know you you know, you know our tribe. I mean, you're, you know, your husband is part of our tribe, but it still has got to be. You're coming on with mostly guys who you know um, are probably leaning you know, way more, you know, or not more conservative than you, but would lean conservative. And, but at the same time, you really had to also thread the needle, I'm sure, with, with, with many people on the left, too, who, who would be even more angry sometimes with some of, your, some of the, what they might perceive as exclusivity. So for you, yeah. I, I'm really grateful for you and the courageous stand that you have had to take to, to say, hey, wait a second, there are some legitimate things we need to talk about here. Um, but then also, you know, not going headlong into the way the, way the culture is going. And so I, I think I speak for everyone here. Um, when I say I, I really do appreciate and, and, and commend you for your courage, for your intellect, for your insight and your care and compassion for this issue. And we are glad that you're on our team. <laughs> we need you on our team. Um, I, and and I, I want to give you just one one quick um, moment to wrap it up. But I do want to say I'm going to have Bob Osborne put on the screen. Um, you know, you, you mentioned uh, Yarhouse and he has we yeah. have uh, involved we have engaged with him on some things. And so he's going to put in the chat a couple of resources that you could, you could look. Yeah. Um, you could, um, at Wheaton, at Wheaton, there's a center for uh, the study of sexuality and all. And, and he probably has the best data set 
and he is actually helping with some policy issues um, nationally. So yeah, he'd be a great resource. Yeah, and I, and I think I think you guys, everyone, uh, men and women on this call. I mean, this is going to require again courage for all of us to walk through these things because we have people in our congregations that are that are vehemently committed to one side or, or the other, and it's very hard, especially in this day and age. To, to have a nuanced understanding, to, to think more than just in sound bites. And to, to, you know, we always talk about um, grammar uh, uh, rhetoric and, and I guess, what is it? Grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And, you know, we, we, we jump straight to the rhetoric. We don't really talk about the, the terms. We don't define terms. That's why we started with defining terms because we can, if we can start defining terms, then we can, then when we get to the argumentation, we know what we're talking about. Well, and make sure that when we're using those terms, we're not just going with cultural narratives that are very inflammatory, intentionally inflammatory, but actually like sciencey uh, kind of descriptions of stuff. I'm going to put um, I'm going to put Pastor Brian Chan on the spot. And Brian, would you would you close us in prayer uh, today? But again, I, I and I hope I Amy, just real quick. I speak for everyone on this call. and We say thank you so much. I. I know the vast majority of people um, on this call, and I know how grateful they are uh, yeah. for, 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 this, for this time. And what we'll do, by the way, is we will put this, um, this, will be a, this will be turned into a podcast, and this will also be made uh, available. You'll get a link uh, that you can watch this on YouTube and share it with people. And um, certainly, uh, if people want to follow up with you, uh, I know, I mean, you know, you're, you have a job and you're very busy, but I'm, we, would you be okay if anyone wanted to follow up with you? Yeah. And actually I'll stay on after okay. I don't happen to have anything till one thirty, So I'll be happy to answer questions for those of you that have time or my email, Bob Osborne can always get a hold of me. Okay. I, I am not an expert on sexual stuff. I just teach sexual ethics. And so I don't want to claim more expertise than I have. Appreciate that. Hey, Brian, why don't you pray for us? All right. Heavenly Father, God, Lord, we want to thank you, God, so much for our sister, Amy, that you've placed someone like her and equipped her to be in your kingdom, where she can bless us and equip the rest of us as well as we go forth to minister to people that you love so dearly, Lord. And we pray, God, that you will equip us, pastors and ministers in your churches, Lord, empower us, Father, with huge loving hearts, with deep insight and wisdom to know how to minister to those who are gay to those who are intersex, to those who um, experience uh, gender dysphoria. And we pray, Father God, that um, because of our work and your grace through us and the wisdom you give to us, your kingdom will expand and people will experience uh, the deep love and grace of Jesus uh, through our ministries. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.